Please stand with me as we hear God's Word read. Our text this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. I'll begin, though, in verse 15 to remind us of the context of our passage. Hear now the Word of the Lord that is infallible, sufficient, and true. We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would bless this reading and hearing of Your Word, that we might truly know You better and the glorious work of Your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are certain sayings that we don't really know where they come from or necessarily what they mean, but we use them all the time. One example might be waiting for the other shoe to drop. My guess is that many of us, if not all of us, know what that means. It means that we're waiting for what inevitably follows from one thing to occur. And so, we think though about what does that have to do with shoes? Well, if you're like me, you could get on the internet and go to Google and type in waiting for the shoe to drop and you'll find some story about one shoe dropping and one shoe being set down carefully, but... That's not really to the point. The point is, it's something that we know. We see something, we hear something, we say something, and we're waiting for what inevitably comes next. That's the situation that Paul's in this morning for us. You may recall that last week we looked at the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. How we are justified not at all by works but only by faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone who seeks to be justified by works is condemned. And so, the shoe that we're waiting to hear drop, the objection that Paul anticipates, it's as if he's, as soon as he's done speaking, these Judaizers are about to hit him with an objection. That objection is, well, that's all well and good, Paul. But you know, if you're justified only by faith, and you don't care about the law, and you don't care about works, then I guess your life is a mess. I guess you don't keep the Ten Commandments, do you? 
You're above that by faith in Jesus Christ. Does it really matter to you if you commit adultery? Does it really matter to you if you lie? Because after all, there are no consequences if you lie. Because you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. You just have to believe in Jesus. That's the objection that comes to Paul here this morning. And it may very well be an objection that you have heard to the Gospel. But you see, Paul anticipates it. And he gives us the biblical answer to the consequences of justification by faith alone. The other shoe that's dropping is justification by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, does not nullify a moral and good life. It establishes it. It doesn't do away with obedience. It makes obedience an imperative. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What I'd like us to look at are what might seem to be a series of contradictions. First thing I'd like us to see is Paul's statement that grace does not bring sin. The Judaizers may have thought it does, but grace does not bring sin. And in order to press that point home, he says, really, it's death that brings life. Death brings life. We need to die to live. And then finally, he says, not only does grace not bring sin, but like death brings about life, grace brings about obedience. It's grace that establishes obedience. Well, let us look first then and see that grace does not bring sin. The first thing that we see is that Something that we know from last week, that grace rules out all merit. The context for this passage here, beginning in verse 17, is Paul's great defense of justification by faith alone. And he picks that right up again here in verse 17. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. He says that's the given. The only place we're looking for justification is in Jesus Christ and His work. He says, we can't seek refuge in the law at all. It's as if you were traveling. And you get to a certain point. It's the point called the point of no return. If you were flying a plane, it's the point at which you've gone so far that if you turned around, you don't have enough fuel to get back. It's a one-way trip. That's the way the justification by faith is. You can't begin by grace and then seek to supplement it by the law. If you seek to be justified by grace, you must cast aside all merit. Now, why is that? It's because we're to be justified not by our own righteousness, but by God's. We seek to be justified, Paul says, in Christ. You may recall last week we looked at Psalm 143 where David said that no living person is justified or righteous in God's sight. But the thing that he does over and over again in Psalm 143 is talk about the Lord's righteousness. In verse 1 of Psalm 43, he asks the Lord to hear his prayer because of his righteousness. He says, hear me for your righteousness. He says... Hear me for your steadfast love. For your name's sake, O Lord, hear me. 
This is how we seek to be justified, Paul says. And it's so much so that when one would look at Paul, one might say that he's no different than the sinners. That is, these Gentiles. You remember that from verse 15. He's not a Jew outwardly. He eats with other Gentiles. Something that the law forbade. He might seem to be outwardly a Gentile sinner. And the appearance of those who trust in Christ brings a question from those who seek to be justified by the works of the law. So much so that the blame is cast upon Jesus. Notice what Paul says. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, namely just like the Gentiles, is Christ then the servant of sin? Because we believe in grace, does that mean that Jesus allows us to do whatever we want to do? That Jesus perpetuates sin in our lives? And Paul's answer is resounding. This is one of these occasions where the text, no matter which translation you have, really doesn't give you the full force because actually even the Greek doesn't give you the full force. Paul is saying, certainly not. No way. Not a chance. God forbid, the old King James says. All of those ideas are wrapped up in this. It's almost like he'd say, that's preposterous. How can you even imagine that? That Jesus would be the servant of sin. Well, the reason that one could imagine that is that if you were trying to be justified by merit and by works, you're on a treadmill. Remember we said that earlier about Paul's life. Comparing yourself to others. We can imagine someone saying to the Christian, you know, you're not even trying. What's with eating the bacon over there? Did you read the book of Leviticus? Now, is this what you get by faith in Christ? All of these things that our fathers have kept for hundreds of years just get tossed out the window? Now, this is not just about eating pork or shrimp. Because we see that in our own lives today, don't we? Christian liberty is constantly under attack. How could you possibly do that? How could you even think of doing this? Why? Well, because don't you know you have to do that in order to be right before God? No. I'm right before God by faith in Christ. And Paul goes so far as to say, if I rebuild what I destroyed then I'm really a sinner. You see, seeking justification by merit is actually what leads to sin. You see, if merit is out, what prevents license? What prevents sin? And Paul's first answer is, actually, it's reversed. If I'm seeking to justify myself before God by my works, all I'm doing is sinning even more. I'm disobedient. I'm unbelieving. I disbelieve God when He says faith in Christ is enough. I don't trust the Lord's wisdom in providing for salvation by faith. I'm actually disobeying God while trying to obey. It's like running on a treadmill. 
But instead of going forward, all you're going is backward, further and further and further. And the harder you run, the further back you go. Because you see, it's seeking your own glory. The solution is worse than the problem, Paul says. It might be like this. If you were coming to the New World in the 18th century and you found out that the ship had too much weight and someone got the bright idea that the way to solve this problem is to dump all the food overboard in the middle of the Atlantic. That will lighten our weight. Yeah. But the solution is worse than the problem. Now instead of riding a little low, you get to starve to death. That's what Paul's saying. And we see this even today, don't we? One bumper sticker that I think really expresses a truth of the Bible is that Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. And that's true. And the world wants to attack us with that. Well, you're a Christian. Well, you should be perfect. Your marriage should be perfect. You should never argue. Your children should be obedient every minute of the day. Don't get on that treadmill. The behavior of your children does not make you closer to God. Justification is by faith. Now, how can this be? Well, Paul continues to answer this question with our second point this morning, that death brings life. We're familiar with this concept from the Scriptures, right? Our Lord Himself says it. You must die to live. And we scratch our heads and we go, that doesn't make much sense. And sometimes we use analogies like, for the farmer, we plant a seed and the seed must die for it to sprout and to bring life. But Paul gives it to us right in the context of how we're made right with God. He says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now what does that mean? Through the law I died to the law. Well, the first thing we need to think about is what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, I would not have known sin but for the law. Unless the law had said, do not covet, I wouldn't have known I was a coveter. The law shows us the will of God, the revealed will of God for our lives, and it's a mirror, James says, that shows us the spots that we need to clean off. Have you ever tried to have someone describe to you when you have a piece of food on your mouth or on your face and they're like, no, it's over here, up, higher, over. But if you look in a mirror, you see it perfectly, don't you? And you wipe it clean. The law does that for us. It shows us clearly our sin in the holiness of God. But, and this is a very important but, the law's power is one of condemnation. It's not one of life. We might think of it this way. If you go into a doctor for a medical test, they do some blood work to determine whether you have mono or whether you have some sort of illness. What does the test do? Do they give you the test and does that cure your illness? No. The test diagnoses the problem. 
you still need the cure. The law is like the test. Don't count on the test to cure you. It just diagnoses the problem. The law has no power to give life. Now, notice something interesting about what Paul says here about death and the law. He doesn't say what we would expect him to say. He doesn't say the law died. That's very popular in evangelical circles today. To say the law is gone. It doesn't exist. Jesus Christ killed the law, did it away with. Don't ever mention the law. Only think about grace. But That's not what Paul says, is it? He doesn't say the law died. He says, I died to the law. What does he mean by that? And he says, I died. Not only did I die to the law, he says it's through the law that I died. Now we're very confused. We're very confused until we take our eyes off the law and off ourselves and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then all of this makes sense. What does it mean to die to the law? Paul says it in a once-for-all fashion. It's not, I was dying to the law. It's not, I used to die to the law. It's, I died. Period. What does he mean by this? He means the penalty of the law has been carried out. Everything that the law could do to him has been done. Every part, every parcel, every inch of the penalty has been inflicted upon Paul. Every second of the sentence has been inflicted. The law has brought about Paul's death. And so the law has no power over him. He is dead to the law. How is that? It's because, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. You see, Christ's death is my death. I hung up there on the cross with Jesus Christ. His death has been reckoned to me. Don't look to the law to give me any more punishment. I don't need any merit. All that needed to be done has been done by Jesus. Is that the way that you think about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? That Jesus has done everything that is necessary. Not just most. Not 99%. But everything. You are dead to the law. Christ's death is your death. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there. It's not just that we're dead to the law. We're also dead to self. See, life comes not just from dying to the law, but from dying to self. Look what he says. He says, I died to the law so that... Kids, do you know what so that means? I went to the stadium so that I could watch a game. There's purpose involved here. There's result involved here. One thing leads to the other. He's died to the law so that he might live to God. He has been crucified with Christ and that means that his life 
is no longer his own. What does that mean for Paul? What does that mean for you? I imagine that if I had asked many of you to finish the verse, I have been crucified, you could finish it. What does that mean? It means, dear Christian, that the world no longer revolves around you. It doesn't. Not in a selfish way and not in a works righteousness way. Even your salvation is not primarily about you. It's about Jesus Christ. Your world is Jesus' world. Your life is Jesus' life. Now, do you see what Paul's doing here in verse 19? He's answering the objection in verse 17. He says, if we endeavor to be justified in Christ, some are going to say we're sinners. Doesn't grace lead to sin? And what Paul says is, certainly not, so far from it, nothing I have is my own. I can't be selfish at all. I can't think of my own needs, wants, desires. I can only think of Jesus Christ. Because my life is Jesus's. Because of what He has done for me. Do you ever feel lost? Like you're wandering through your life? Like you might be sleepwalking? You don't know what to do? You see, there's another thing that we see here about dying to self. It's that our true selves are found in Jesus Christ. If you want to find yourself, don't go climb a mountain in the Andes or the Himalayas. Don't sit in your living room and chant, Om, Om. Don't read every self-help book in the market. If you want to find yourself, find Jesus in the pages of this book. And there you will find everything that you have been created for. And all provision for your life. That's the meaning behind that short catechism question that we all know by heart. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of your life and it's found in the pages of the Scriptures. But you'll notice what Paul does after he says that. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. You see, Christianity is different than Eastern mysticism. You see, Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, says that the goal of all life is to be sucked up into some great cosmic consciousness where your individual personality ceases to exist. Quick aside here, that's why human rights have always been very suspect in the East and in India. Because the goal of life is to lose yourself as a person and to become part of a big cosmic blob. That's not what Christianity is. You may have heard it put to you this way, that in heaven we will know each other and see each other. And that's true. Because you see, it's Christ's life, but we live it. And that might seem like a contradiction, but it's not. We are to live our lives 
in the power of Christ. With Christ's goals as our goals. So that we can know our true selves. And what this means, this dying to the law, this dying to self, is that we then live to God. Much of evangelical theology is truncated. Truncated, kids, means it's cut short. It might be like if I asked you to look at this big area, but look at it like this. You're only seeing a little bit. We want to open our eyes and see that salvation, Christ's purpose on the cross, was not just to save sinners. It wasn't just to redeem people from judgment and hell. It was so that He might redeem to Himself a people. A people, Titus says, who are zealous for good works. You see, Jesus doesn't just want to save you. He wants to make you into the best person. The person you were intended to be. A person who is perfect in every way. Which you will be in glory. Because of His work. And living to God means living as God wants. For His glory. Living to God means obedience. Making God's priorities your priorities. Living according to the revealed will of God. Living as God tells you, you are to live. Now, there's something interesting about that. Where is it that God tells us how to live? Where is the revealed will of God? Well, the irony here is, it's found in the law. The revealed will of God for you is that you would only worship Him. And that you would not worship idols or worship Him falsely. That you would not take His name in vain. That you would honor His day. That you would honor your parents. That you would not murder. And so on. And so on. That's the revealed will of God for your life. Not as a way of getting closer to God, but as a way of serving Him and making His life your own. So what Paul says here is, certainly not. Not only do we not sin, we really establish the law. No one obeys the law better than the Christian. Because he does it from a proper motive, empowered by God. He's not on a treadmill. Have you ever tried to lose some weight? Maybe you tried to do that by walking. There's two ways you can do that. You could go to one of these very old gyms and get on a treadmill with four white walls and no TV and no book and walk on a treadmill. Or you could go for a walk on a 70-ish degree day with a nice breeze with your spouse through the country. Who wants to sign up for plan A? No takers? You see, that's what life is like for one who seeks to be justified by the law. It's a treadmill. He, he hates the law. He tries to follow the law, but he hates it. Because he knows he can't live up to it. It becomes misery. It's drudgery. 
But to the one who is justified by faith, the law is the loving expression of a dear father, not a judge. So we establish the law, Paul says. We are then free to obey. So what does that mean? It means that if we have died, we have life, and grace itself brings obedience. Notice what Paul says here in verse 20. He says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, notice what obedience looks like. The first thing that obedience looks like is it is faithful. Obedience is about living by faith. Doing presupposes believing. Do you notice that? He says, I live by faith. But just like last week we talked about faith not being some vague thing out there, we're hopeful, hoping against hope. No, it's faith in a person. In the Son of God. Now notice how Paul describes this faith. It's faith in an object, in a person. It's faith in Christ. The Son of God. One who has power. The title the Son of God speaks to the power that Jesus has to break sin in your life. But it's also about one who loved us and gave Himself for us. Now, notice what Paul says here. Don't miss the power of this. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Martin Luther used to say the Bible is full of pronouns. And here's a perfect example. This is why so many believers love and memorize this verse. It's why so many craft makers make rugs and frames and pictures and everything else out of this verse. It's dear to us because it's personal. Jesus gave Himself for me. He loved me. Is that the way that you view the Lord Jesus Christ? If it is, you will be spurred on to obedience and faith. And then to sort of close the gap, Paul ends by saying, you know, really, there's no alternative anyway. (laughs) There's no alternative to grace. It's got to be one or the other. It's what he'll say in another place that if it's of works, it can't be of grace. If there's any of works, there can't be grace. Because if it's going to be of grace and faith, it's got to all be of grace and faith. We might think of it this way. The cross is necessary only if it has the power to save. If the cross doesn't have the power to save, if you still need to be circumcised, if you still need to do something, if you still need to pray a certain number of times in your life, if you still need to read a certain number of words in the Bible, if you still need to do certain things in your family in order to be saved, the cross has no power. It is weak. It is worthless. 
Paul puts it this way. He says, Christ died for no purpose then. Why didn't you just go around trying to do things? Why didn't God just send His Son to say, you know what, try harder? No. You see, the cross has power because it's only the cross that saves. We might think of it this way. How many of you know this saying? We've been talking about sayings a bit now. We know it so well we even forgive the old bad grammar. If it ain't broke, what? Don't fix it. Have you ever wondered then why the Levitical priesthood was replaced with the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek? Have you ever wondered why the ceremonial law was replaced? Have you ever wondered why the sacrificial system was replaced by the cross? It's because in Hebrews, we get a little bit more theological and better grammatical discussion of it was broke, so we had to fix it. As a matter of fact, it was intentionally broke. It was intentionally insufficient so that we could see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You see, there is power in the cross. And that power carries you well past the point where you are saved. It might help you to think of it this way. To think of salvation for you today in three senses. I have been saved. I am being saved right now. And I will be saved. That's what the cross does. It's power for every area of your life. And the proper and appropriate response for that is obedience and thankfulness to a loving God. The salvation by grace, this great doctrine that we hold, make us ministers of sin, licentious, doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want it. Certainly not. It makes us children who love the Father for sending His Son. Let us pray.